This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're calling this series Redeeming Sex. And I want to explain that. I'm going to take a little, I'm going to take more time than I planned on this introduction tonight to talk about why that title and what does it mean. Well, here is the reason for that title is that because sex, like everything else, is not a thing in and of itself, but it is part of a larger story that is found in Scripture. You see, sex is not just an isolated topic, but like all other topics, there is a large story, an overarching story in the Bible, and sex is connected to that overarching story. The Bible teaches us that in the very beginning, in the chapter before we're looking at here, in chapter 1 of Genesis, God created the world, and he created the world by speaking it into existence, and at the end of his creation... After he had created everything that existed and the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, this is what he says in Genesis 1.31. God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God created a good world. God created a perfect world. He created a man and a woman that were without sin, and he placed them in a perfect uh, garden paradise. And we see that everything was good, including the creation of Adam and Eve. They had a perfect relationship. They had perfect communion with one another. And they had perfect communion with God as well. He created them, uh, chapter 1, verse 28 says, He created them in His image. Both male and female, He created them. So He gave them specific genders, and each of them reflected His glory. They were image bearers of God. So they were very much alike in that uh, they were both bearing the image of God. Uh, And Eve was taken from Adam. She was created from his rib. So they shared something very much alike, but they were also very different. She was a suitable helper created for him. She was different than he was. They they were given unique bodies. Uh, They were given a means to join their bodies together in union through the good gift of sex. So God created the body, God created gender and sexuality, God created the good gift of sex, and that's why we want to be able to freely speak about this. Uh, The late Howard Hendricks, who is a professor at Dallas Seminary, said, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. We should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create specifically applying to sexuality. Now, as you know, the story goes, life didn't stay perfect in that garden. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They doubt God's word, they question God's word, and then they defy God's word by seeking freedom to be really their own gods, to be like God, to know what God knows. They are seeking to be like him. They are raising themselves up to be like God, to live like they want to live, and they cross over the boundary that God had provided for them. And this brings utter destruction. We call this the fall of mankind, the fall, the, the fall of humanity, we could say, when sin entered the world and everything changes in the story. So it starts out perfect and glorious and then everything changes with sin. God brings judgment on humanity, on Adam and Eve, and in particular, part of the curse of the judgment was that their relationship together Uh, which was perfect harmony, it, it, it now experiences conflict and strife. Eve will will have conflicting desires against her husband. She will challenge her husband. Uh, her husband will have the tendency not to lovingly care for her, but to dominate her or to be passive and uninvolved with her. And she will have a challenge as well. So there is, there is a, a, a curse that affects the relationship between man and his wife, Adam and Eve. And everything, everything is affected by the fall, in, including our sexuality. 
Our sexuality is affected by the fall. Now, we're going to look at that in two weeks because today I'm talking about the creation of sex. We're going to talk about the fall and how it affects our sex lives and our sexuality. And then we're going to talk about later, we're going to talk about redeemed sexuality as well. So that's, that's kind of where we're going and why I'm telling you this story. So what happens is, is that everyone is affected. Our desires, their desires before were pure. Now our desires are tainted. Our desires are affected, including our sexual desires, by the fall. Sexual attraction, sexual desire, sexual pleasure, those are gifts from God. They're gifts that God created and gave in the garden, and they're wonderful, good gifts. But after the fall, our sexual attractions, our sexual desires, and our sexual pleasures become skewed. They can deviate from God's good creation. And all of us as fallen people, all of us as sinners, can have desires and longings that are amiss from God's good creation and the way sex is to be enjoyed with the parameters he placed upon it. Our desires can move in directions that God never intended them to move, and that is a result of the fall. All sinful desires, not just sex, but all sinful desires are a result of the fall. So because the fall affects everyone, and because everyone is a sexual being, this series is for all of us. Because we have all been affected by the fall. And that is something I have a strong burden at the very beginning to be clear on. That this series is for everyone because this series is for sexual sinners. And that means everyone. Everyone in this room. This series will be for people who are battling sexual fears. People battling sexual frustrations sexual lusts, both those who are in the midst of a battle with sexual lust and those who have given up and are enslaved by their sexual lusts. This series is for you because the Bible addresses these things. This series is for those who walk in tonight and have sexual guilt and sexual shame. Those who are living with sexual disappointment Those on one end of the spectrum uh, who have sexual apathy, which would be a problem for a married person, a person who has sexual apathy on one end to a person who has a sexual addiction, a life-dominating sexual compulsion on the other end, all of us will be addressed. Those who deal with sexual selfishness, sexual covetousness, That's what the 10th commandment about coveting, one of the things it highlights. Do not covet another person's husband or their wife. A desire for a person that is not yours by marriage. They're married to someone else. So the sexually covetous, those who are battling that. This series will also be for the sexually self-righteous. The sexually self-righteous are those of us in the room who are really looking forward to the preacher giving it to those kind of people out there. Really looking forward to what do I have to say about those out there. Those people whose temptations and sins make me go yuck with disgust. That's the sexually self-righteous. It's the lady who doesn't get who just doesn't get why men are drawn to pornography. The lady who says, I would never look at something like that. This series is for you. This series is for the guy who is disgusted by any human who has a same-sex attraction. The person who says, I would never have a feeling like that. This series will be for the person who is grossed out by all those people who read the Fifty Shades book and went to the movie. All of those people with their yucky desires and practices. This series is for you because you are self-righteous. There is a guy in the Bible who says, I would never. And he comes before the Lord and he says, I thank you that I am not like that guy, the despised, hated tax collector. 
And the despised, hated tax collector says, be merciful to me, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And the guy who looks down in judgment over someone else's temptations and someone else's sins, separating himself, saying, I am glad I'm not like that. I would never, that person uh, is wrong. He is not right with God. And yet the sinner who says, Lord, have mercy on me, he goes down justified. And so as much as various sexual sins, there is a self-righteousness around this topic that I pray the Lord roots out from us all as well. So this is a series for all of us because we are all those kind of people. The room is filled with those kind of people. Those kind of people are those who do not live in the garden with perfection. People who do not have completely holy and righteous sexual desires. People who are affected by the fall. You did not escape the fall. None of your, your desires are not free from the fall. Is sexual sin offensive to God? Yes. Is self-righteousness offensive to God? Yes. But the grace of God comes to sexual sinners and to the self-righteous alike. Those who are fallen who cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Those who desperately need God's grace. The message of the fall is that we are all in desperate need of grace. And much of the public rhetoric from the church in these days, it misses that point altogether, or at least it doesn't show up. It may be in the fine print, but I don't hear it in the headlines. It's not from Christians' headlines in the social media. It's not from representation of Christians in the regular media. Sometimes those are fair, sometimes they're not. But the message of the Bible is that only one is holy and glorious, and that is God, and everyone else is fallen. And so as sinners, there is no us and them. There's us, and there's him, and there's the grace of God that saves us and rescues sinful people. So the fall affects us all. There is a perfect creation, and then there is a fall, and then there is a promise of redemption. See, after the fall, after Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, God promises that he's going to send one that will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to send one who will redeem, who will give new life. That is Jesus. And so Jesus comes. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Jesus comes to earth and lives a perfect life. Jesus never lusts. Jesus never sins. And yet Jesus dies the death of a sinner. Jesus dies on a cross and pays for our sins. So though he is perfect, he dies as if he's an adulterer, as if he's a pornographer, as if he's a fornicator, as if he is, what, name the sexual sin. He didn't do any of those, but he dies as if he did that. In our place, he lives a perfect life and he dies for our sins. On the third day, he is raised to new life. And those who turn from our sins and trust in him, we receive new life. We receive the forgiveness of all our sins. His perfect life is credited to us. Our sins are credited and put on him. And then God puts his Holy Spirit in us, gives us a new heart and a new life, and now he is going about changing us. He is giving us new desires. He is making us more like his son. We're still fallen. We still sin, but he is changing us. Sometimes it feels very, very, very slow, but he is changing us over time to make us more like his son. And that's why the title is Redeeming Sex, because we are all fallen, and yet God is about the business of redeeming and changing sinners to glorify him, to reflect him. He's building marriages that honor him and reflect his glory and grace to others. He's calling singles to a radical lifestyle of not sexual indulgence, but a life lived for God and his people, being a light in the darkness, investing their lives in ways that bring him honor and bring him that, sh that share and spread his fame. 
In a passage about sex in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's redeemed sex. It's a person that has been bought by Christ, owned by him, and as a single is living a life of sexual chastity for the glory of God, Uh, Not a life of emptiness, not a life devoid of relationships and friendships, not a life devoid of friendship, intimacy, or that sort of thing, but a life that is pure, sexual chastity, and for married couples, a life of uh, uh, where sexuality represents a deep and a profound union and joining of the husband and wife, enjoyed fully for the glory of God. A, a, A sex life characterized by passion and joy as a gift from God for the glory of God. That's redeemed sex. That's what the Lord is doing. And one day we will be totally redeemed. One day we will be completely changed when he returns and there'll be a new day, a new heavens and a new earth, he promises. And at that point, uh, at that point, uh, that's called the consummation or the restoration of all things. And that'll be a new and a glorious day. And there will be no sexual sin, no sexual temptation. Neither will there be marriage, according to Jesus. There is not marriage in heaven as well. So those are the four points of the story of the Bible. I told you the whole story of the Bible. That's it. That's the four points. It's creation. God creates a perfect world. It's fall. Mankind falls into sin, and everyone after Adam and Eve carries a sin nature within us. And then there is redemption. Jesus comes to bring forgiveness and a new life and power to change, power to live like God called us to live originally. And then we'll mature and mature, and then one day we die or he returns, and then it's completed, and it's perfection once again. That is the story of the Bible. And now I want to talk about how our sex lives um, relate to that. Now, normally, if you're new here, we walk through a passage of Scripture. And over the next eight weeks, there's some Sundays I'm going to walk through a single passage of Scripture, and there's some Sundays I'm going to look at a number of Scriptures. So tonight's one of those. We'll look at several. And I want to say this on the, on the, um, uh, from, the, from the start, in case you are new, uh, is that we believe the Scripture is authoritative. We don't believe the preacher or anyone as a Christian has the right to determine ethics based on cultural popularity, based on what seems reasonable and wise to us. We believe that ethics and sexual ethics, for sure, are be, to be determined by what the Scripture teaches um, and that the Scripture is authoritative. God calls the Scripture the God-breathed Word. And so just at the outset, I wanted to explain that. I'm not going to be offering... I may offer some studies. I read a bunch this week. Uh, so I may give some statistics or some studies or some sociological or psychological data. I may do that in the series, but that would be illustrative because we don't believe that's authoritative. We believe what's authoritative is the Scripture. So we are people, as a church, we're saying this. We are people who are under your rulership. And God, as the creator of everything, you have the right to dictate what is right and what is wrong. You have the freedom to create the world the way you want it to be, and the way you create it will be the best, for you are perfect and glorious. So we submit ourselves to your uh, rulership. And we also have a measure of compassion in our hearts for those who don't know you and are doing what's right in their own eyes and are leading lives that are chaotic, just trying to find their own moral compass because they're blinded and separated from you. So our starting posture is not them. Our starting posture is, Lord, why me? Why do I even know the truth of Scripture? And why does it even matter? That is grace. And so we want to bring truth to those who don't know it, but we need to start with the fact that they don't know it, they don't see it, or they're rebelling against it from a blinded eyes and from a heart that is, that is dead spiritually to things that we see in the Scripture. So that's how we want to relate with those who have a different point of view. We want to bring the truth to them, we want to tell them their need for a Savior, and then we want to call them to, uh, to Christ. So tonight, here's the question I want to talk about after that very lengthy introduction. I'll never have an introduction that long on the rest of the messages. But tonight what I want to talk about is a subject that is rarely discussed. I did a lot of reading this week and the last couple of weeks on the subject, and it's rarely discussed, and it is the why of sex. There's a lot of how about sex in our culture. So every time... I check out, which is not that often, uh, but when I check out at the supermarket, every time I do, the how of sex is on display. 
articles like, I'm making this up, I didn't see this exact one, but things like seven bedroom tricks to drive him wild. That is the typical thing. So that's the how. That, is, that shows a culture because next week, next month it'll be five new tricks that weren't in the previous one. And then the next month it's going to be three secrets. And then it's going to be the one killer thing that will, okay, that is, that is grieved, that's sad because it's a culture that's grasping for fulfillment and their sexual lives are ultimately empty. So we got to have a new trick and a new, uh, we got to have some new, new thing uh, every month to allure people and draw them in. Uh, so it, it's somewhat sad, but we have a lot about the how. But what we don't get is the why. What is the meaning of sex? What is the purpose of sex? Most of us haven't thought about that. Most men, even Christian men, have said, what's the purpose of sex? They'd say, well, I don't know. I just started thinking about it in about sixth or seventh grade, and I hadn't stopped. I'm just, I hadn't stopped thinking about it my whole life, but I don't really know what the purpose is. But if we don't understand the purpose of sex, uh, we will be limited. We want to understand the purpose so that we enjoy its use all the more, and we clearly are able to identify its misuse as well. If we don't understand the purpose, we won't understand what its misuse is. So what I want to do is uh, I'm going to look at four or five purposes and then one ultimate purpose. So four or five purposes of sex that, um, uh, that are built in the Scripture and then one ultimate purpose of sex as well. And uh, so I was going to do that all tonight, and then today I said, nope, I'm only going to cover one of them tonight, and then next week they're much shorter. I'll cover the other ones without this introduction of the story of the Bible and all that. I'll cover the other ones uh, next week. So tonight I'm just going to do one, and you'll have to come back next week to find out what the other purposes, uh, what the other purposes are. The seven secrets. No, they're not. Just going to tell you what their purposes are next week. Okay, um, if we want to see what the purpose of sex is, we should go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Well, first of all, that's where Jesus and Paul go. When Jesus and Paul teach about marriage or sex, they go back to creation. Um, uh, Jesus does this in Matthew 19 when he's asked about divorce, and he tells us what is the nature of marriage. The nature of marriage, he says in, in Matthew 19, this is Jesus, this isn't the old, just the Old Testament, it's Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament. Uh, he says that mar- God made man male and female, uh, and that he, he made them, uh, he called them to leave their father and mother and cleave together and be one flesh. Um, and so he talks about this one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. So that's his definition of, of it. Uh, and then Paul as well, in both Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6, he looks back to Genesis as well and says we find marriage and sex there um, because that's where it functioned perfectly before the fall. We only have the first two chapters of the Bible to know what life was like on the planet prior to sin, which messed everything up. So we want to go back to the beginning, and one of the reasons, one of the five that we, are four or five, I'm not sure if I'm going to break one into two, but um, one of the reasons is for, this will be the first one, the only one I'm going to talk about tonight, consummation. Consummation. Uh, And I'll explain what that means in a minute. Look at Genesis 2, verses 18. Uh, Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So Adam's alone in the garden, and God says, it's not good that he's alone. I'm going to make a helper for him, a companion, a helper, one that is fit for him. If you look at the footnote, uh, it says one corresponding to him, or at least my Bible does that uh, one who is corresponding to him. So he, she will not be the same as he is. She will fit. She will correspond to him. There will be a complementarity. She will compliment him. No, you know, not like, hey, I love your hair. Your hair. I'm sure she did that. But compliment like they go together. They'll compliment each other. And uh, so she will compliment him. Now she's created, uh, chapter 1 tells us she's in the image of God just like him. She's not lesser. Verse 127, they're both created in the image of God, male and female. But she's created for him. So then what happens in verse 21, it says, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he uh, slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up in its, pl- its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So, uh, so she is created from him 
And then God, notice this, God brings her to him. God is the one who is orchestrating, ordaining, designing, and bringing together the man and the woman. And then uh, when Adam sees her, there's the first kind of poetic expression in all the Bible. Actually, this is the first time he speaks. And it's verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so when he sees her, he exults. He is blown away uh, when he actually sees her. He's celebrating. He's reciting poetry. Um, obviously she's like him in the image of God, but he immediately notices she is not like him as well. And where she is different, he finds that uh, room for celebration. And so he is celebrating her. And then uh, what we see next is that verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is a picture, a design of marriage. It's a design of marriage that is not just descriptive, but also is prescriptive. Here's another way we might say it. This is the paradigm for marriage. And we know this for a couple of reasons. One is Jesus's reference back to it as the nature of marriage. And secondly, because the text itself tells us this is not just about Adam and Eve. Uh, She's created for him. They go to, he goes to sleep, she's created, she comes forth, he bursts into poetic song, and then verse 24, therefore, because of this situation with Adam and Eve, a man, generic, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Because of what's happening with Adam and Eve, this is now the pattern for marriage uh, to come. And we see in marriage, in this pattern, there's three things that are involved in marriage. First of all, there is a new status Verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So he will leave his family of origin. He will join with a woman and they will form a new entity that did not exist, a new family. It will change his relationship with his old family and it will change the relationship, the way everyone relates to them as well. They are now their own family. They are a couple and so there is a new status. There is a new commitment as well. He shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It means he shall stick to her. The old language is he will cleave to her. You shall leave your father. We should say leave and cleave. Leave your father and mother. Cleave to your wife. This language of cleave and sticking to, it's, it's language of covenant. This is a covenant before God. God has brought them together in a covenant. Uh, Malachi 2.14 uses the word covenant. This doesn't. But the Malachi 2.14 speaks of marriage as two people as covenant companions. A covenant. It's more than a contract. It's more than a contract. Uh, civilly, there is a contract. A marriage license represents a contract. But this is something more than that. This is before God a solemn pledge, the uniting, the cleaving, the holding fast to is a commitment, a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman before God. So the state can offer a marriage license, but the state cannot render a holy covenant between God and people. Cannot do that. So a covenant occurs before God. It is a lifelong commitment. God is the one who brings her to him. And we see later it's referred to as a covenant. Uh, Proverbs 2, I believe 14 as well, speaks of the same thing. Of a, of a covenant before God. So there's a new status, a new commitment, and then there is consummation. Consummation comes next. And, uh, uh, they shall become one flesh. New status, he leaves his family. New commitment, he's now clinging to her um, in a covenant relationship, and there is a consummation. Consummation means completion. So what's it saying? It's saying the completion of the marriage covenant happens through sexual intercourse. That is the completion. They become one flesh. Now, becoming one flesh, as I'm going to talk about here, involves more than the uniting of sexual organs. 
Being one flesh means more than having intercourse, but it doesn't mean any less than that. As a matter of fact, in some states, a marriage is not even legal until it's been consummated. You can go to the Justice of the Peace, you can go to a church, but until you've had intercourse, it's not consummated and actually could be annulled prior to that in some states. So even the state understands, some states even understand that the nature of a formal relationship, this covenant commitment, this one flesh relationship is what the scripture calls it, is sealed by becoming one. Um, Tim Keller writes of this, and he says, to call marriage one flesh, he says they'll become one flesh, to call marriage one flesh means that sex is understood both as a sign of that personal legal union and a means to accomplish it. So when a couple gets married and then has sex, the, the sexual intercourse is a sign of their covenant, but it also completes it. It's the, it's the seal of the covenant, we could say. It ratifies the promise. They make vows, they make promises. That ratifies it, the joining of their bodies. Now, one flesh does mean more than just sex. It means becoming one as persons as well. We're not just physical beings. Now, the Bible's really big on the body. The Bible is very body positive. The Bible, Bible is very... It's, it's the Greeks that were against things that are physical and for things that are spiritual. That slept, uh, slipped into the church. You'll meet Christians like anything physical, oh, yeah, that's just bad, and we're just all spiritual. Man, Paul tears that to pieces in the New Testament. There's people saying you can't even get married and have sex if you want to be holy, and Paul's saying nonsense. So that's really corrected in the Bible. The Bible is very positive about our bodies, um, but we're not just body. We are embodied souls. We have an inner part of us. And so the one flesh relationship doesn't just unite bodies, but it unites us emotionally. It unites a, a couple personally, spiritually, in, in what I've just been talking about, even legally, economically. All of life is joined together uh, that, that's what the one flesh relationship is, and the sexual union represents that. We are sharing, and a couple is sharing all that they are and becoming one. That's what Jesus said. They shall become one flesh, and the two will be one, is what he says in Matthew 19. One person. And it's not just for consummation, but as in the Old Testament, covenants were ratified. Uh, re-ratified. They were, in an ongoing way, uh, covenants were, uh, there was covenant renewals. Whenever there's a covenant, they would have a renewal ceremony. And in many ways, when a married couple has sex, I know this doesn't sound super romantic. I'm just trying to give a 30,000-foot kind of um, uh, a theology uh, sort of of what's happening in our sexual union because this is really important ultimately uh, because it, t- it speaks into why the misuse of sex is so dangerous. But... Uh, that in the old covenant, in the Old Testament, when there are covenants, they had renewal ceremonies. So every time a married couple has sex, they are renewing their covenant ceremony. They are making a statement that their lives are one, whether they think about it or not. They're making a statement that their lives are one, that all one person is is shared with all that the other person is. Keller go, Tim Keller goes on to write, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And that's why all this covenant stuff is so important that I'm talking about. It is a statement that I belong completely, openly, shamelessly, intimately, all of me. I belong completely, Permanently, this is not a temporary contract where either party can just uh, exit uh, at will and exclusively. It means that I am in covenant with you alone. I am not doing this same thing with anyone else. I am joined to you alone. So sex consummates the marriage, but it's also a means of cultivating the lifelong bond that a married couple shares. It's glorious because it celebrates, it confirms, it even deepens the oneness of two lives shared that have become one. So sex is much more than the thrill of sex. It's much more than that. It is a joining of lives. 
Uh, I'm quoting some authors. I, I forgot these books. Back in the old days, if I forgot a book, I walked into my office and got it, but this is in our building and I don't office here. So I have books at home that I'll bring next week and recommend a couple of things, or maybe I'll put them on the city. But one book on the meaning of sex by Dennis Hollinger, he says, it is the most intimate sex is the most intimate meaning of two pe- whole persons. When we encounter the other sexually, we become part of them and they become part of us. That's what this means. They shall become one flesh. This is such a big deal and such a big purpose of sex that it's the very point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6. You want to talk about talking about sex in the church? Uh, In the Corinthian church, Paul has to tell everybody in a letter that's read to the church, has to tell the men to stop sleeping with prostitutes. Because the men in the church are going down, and for the purpose of worship, they're having sex with female prostitutes, and he has to say, knock it off. Now, why does he say it? Does he say, God just doesn't like sex? No, God created it as a good gift to be enjoyed gloriously, wondrously. We're going to look at that. We're going to study the Song of Solomon and see that. So, no, it's not because God's against sex. It's not because Paul is a prude. It's not because Paul is a single guy and just doesn't get it, uh, has a gift of celibacy. It's none of that. Why does Paul say, don't be having sex with temple prostitutes? It's because of the verse we're reading. This is what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's the strongest language he could use. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Paul says you're joined in like a marriage relationship. All that she is emotionally, spiritually, everything, you're acting like you're joining your lives. The purpose of sex is not just sex. It's not just for a thrill. It's not just a physical event. You're joining your life to her and you're taking Christ because you're joined to Christ. You're taking Christ and joining uh, yourself with Christ to a prostitute. So that's what his concern is. The Corinthians had a view that many in our culture do, that sex, uh, sex is no more than a biological urge. Matter of fact, this is what they said to him. They said, Paul, the stomach is for the body and the body is for the... F- I'm sorry, that's, that's wrong. They said the stomach is for food and food is for the stomach. That's what they said. What do they mean? The body is for sex and sex is for the body. So for the Corinthians... They just believed having sex with someone is just like eating a meal. My body's hungry, I eat. There's no commitment, there's no big deal. It's just a biological function. So they were just thinking, the guys in the church saying, I join my part to her part, and it's just like eating a meal. That's all it is. And Paul's saying, "Uh, no, Genesis 2, you're joining your life intimately. So, So don't do it for that reason. One flesh is, includes sex, but it's never just about sex. It's about two people coming together in the most intimate way possible and creating a new entity, a one flesh united couple. And as delightful as married sex can be, it represents something that even is more delightful, that it was not good for Adam to be alone, that he was to leave his... Well, he didn't have a father and mother, but following him, you were to leave your father and mother, to cleave to your wife, to consummate the relationship through sexual intercourse, and then to enjoy sex as a means of celebrating their oneness, growing in their oneness, renewing their oneness, reflecting the unity of life that they enjoyed. It's interesting, the Bible, this kind of intimacy, it it uses another word as well for the one flesh relationship. Sometimes sex in the Bible is described with the verb to know. To know. And so in Genesis 4, 1, for instance, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. It didn't mean that he was aware of some facts about her. Adam knew Eve. Well, she's about 5'7". She likes walks in a garden, a perfect garden, especially before the fall. And she, you know, she likes, she's a great cook and uh, favorite flowers of rose. He didn't mean that he knew Eve. It, he was naked. They were together intimately in sexual union. That's what it meant that he knew his wife. 
And so the sharing, the reason it's a one flesh sharing of two people becoming one, and, and the reason it's exclusive, is or designed to be exclusive, is because uh, it, it is a knowledge of another person that comes through exposure, vulnerability, intimacy, openness, transparency. Sexual union is knowing a person uh, unlike any other way of knowing a person. It's saying to a person, I'm sharing this personal, intimate, transparent, vulnerable knowledge of myself privately with you. And because of that, there should be a lifelong, permanent covenant that accompanies that type of vulnerability, exposure, intimacy, because we're one. And that's why Paul says, it's not the body is for food. We're not talking about eating a burger at lunch here. We're talking about sharing and becoming one with this prostitute, is what he says. See, oftentimes the church is just pictured as saying, no, it's just a bunch of no, no, no. And we don't think deeply at all about why. What's the purpose of sex? This is just one of them. But one of them is to, be, is to consummate the marriage and then to ratify, to celebrate, to deepen that oneness throughout life. Sex is a bold, joyful reminder of the exclusivity of the one flesh relationship. And it helps to cultivate the bond as well. Let me close with a little bit of application For those of you who hear this and go, wow, that's not the ideal that I have lived up to. Let me just share a quote. I'll I'll bring this book to you. I just love it. I wrote this quote down. I said, this is gold. I may say this quote every, next to Bible verses, this may be the best thing I say in this whole series, and I didn't say it. But I may say this quote every message. I don't know. This is what it is. The gospel is not for the sexually upright, but for the sexually fallen. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, comes to us in our sin and rescues us out of that. I just thought as I was preparing and talking about this tonight, there may be some in the room who you have shame. You hear this tonight, and you are struck with shame from your past because you've sinned sexually. Everyone has, but you've sinned maybe not just in heart. You've sinned in act, like what Paul was talking about. So, so maybe it's not just mentally, but you've sinned actually, physically, with another person, and it haunts you to this day. I mean, you may be a single person, and, and you just live with this. I mean, just hearing this topic, hearing what I'm saying about the glory of sex. I'm going to talk about sex in a fallen world. It's not all glorious at all for married couples, for sure. But I'm talking tonight about the created intent of sexuality, and you're feeling dirty, and you're feeling condemned, and you're, I hope I, I hadn't intended to make you feel condemned, but just as you read this, you're going, oh, what about me? What about me? I, I even had an impression, this is unusual. I don't, this doesn't happen to me very often, but I even had an impression that there might be a single person in the room who you feel like God's punishing in you. That you feel like God is withholding bringing a person into your life to marry because of the sexual sin you committed in the past, and that somehow God is opposing you and is, is punishing you in like a timeout or something, restricting you somehow. And that's just not the way God works. You haven't blown your chances at redemption. There's no unredeemable sin. There's none. Maybe you're married and you hear this tonight and, and your sexual relationship is hindered by the sins of your past. And so you either feel guilty and that puts a damper on your sexual intimacy or uh, you can't help but running through. It's DVR'd or TiVo'd or whatever you use to record. Uh, in your mind, it's recorded, and so it's on playback. Your sexual past is on playback in your mind, and it is hindering your intimacy with your spouse because of guilt or because of lust, either way. And Jesus died for every sexual sin. We're all fallen, but Jesus died for our sins, the sins of fornication, the sins of adultery, the sins of lust. You can experience a permanent cleansing Christ. I don't believe what I just described is God's will for the Christian. I don't believe 
that the mercy and the grace of God says, you did that? Okay, you're going to always, always feel guilty. You're going to always feel plagued. You're going to always be enslaved to lust. If you hadn't done that, you wouldn't be enslaved. I'd take you out of the lust temptations. I'd free you if you hadn't done that, but you're going to pay for it. Listen, Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for it. The grace of God gives us new life. It doesn't mean that there's not sometimes physical consequences to certain sins in our lives. But even when there's physical consequences, there's mercy to walk them through. There's grace. There's God with us. I believe for some who are living with shame in their past that in this series, God doesn't want you to walk out of here every week feeling defeated and hopeless. That's not the gospel. And the gospel is not for the sexually upright, because there are none. The gospel is not for the sexually upright, but for the sexually fallen. The grace of God doesn't say that sin's no big deal. The grace of God doesn't say, go sin all you want. May it never be. The grace of God says you can turn to Christ in forgiveness and you can be forgiven. When the woman is called in adultery, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He, he, does, he frees her in faith towards him. And he tells her not to continue that pathway, that lifestyle. Maybe there's shame in your life because not your sin, but someone sinned against you. You've been sexually violated as a victim. And you hear some of these things and it's confusing and it's burdensome and it's troubling. And I can't in 30 seconds give a, I wouldn't even want to give a pat answer that would somehow solve all of that, uh, the, the kind of brokenness and, and um, really the brokenness of your own heart that you've experienced because you've been harmed. Um, so there's no, I don't have a quick answer. But I do have this, that I don't believe that because someone sinned against you that God doesn't want to extend mercy and grace towards you, starting with the truth that you're not responsible for someone's sin against you. And God wants to minister his mercy and grace. There, we can get you some help. If you want to talk with someone, we would love to provide some means of help to help you deal with that. So I thought there's some who are, have shame from their past because of what they've done or maybe what was done to them. Number two, I thought there's probably people here who are having conviction of sin in the present. Maybe you're currently involved in sexual sin. The fact that I'm saying we're all fallen, we're all broken, we're all sinners is not so that we think it's not a big deal. It's a very big deal. What I just read about Paul saying to the Corinthians, he makes it a very big deal. But the grace of God is a bigger deal. That's the point. We need to have the fear of God, but we need to be aware of the grace of God. It is a bigger deal. So if you are currently convicting, convicted of sin, that means you are currently involved in sexual sin. God is calling you to repent. As a Christian, he's calling you to repent. That means he's calling you to turn away from that by his power. And depending on the nature of that, it may require you to get some help. Probably will require you to get some help. In most cases, it would. So I urge you to talk to a a, cr a trusted Christian friend. I'm not going to, based on what I'm talking about right now, I'm not going to have a ministry time, prayer time at the end of the service tonight. But I want to encourage you to talk to someone, uh, your community group leader, one of the pastors, someone you can talk to because God wants to free you from sexual sin. You don't have to be entangled in it. That's the good news of the gospel. You do not have to have life dominating sexual sin rule you. You're, you don't have to have that. The Lord can free you. It may take time, uh, it may be hard. But God is gracious and will free. He will free us from the entrapment of sin. If you are a young person, talk to your parents. By the way, if you're a young person, I've already prepped your parents. I already had a meeting with them. And guess what? I already prepped your parents to hear something shocking. I went through a shocking, shocking, okay? I'm saying that in quotes. I went through a list of sexual sins in detail and said, your kid may confess this to you. So if they do... It's not freak out time. It's the Lord is bigger than this. And it's the mercy of God that your child is opening up their heart and to you right now. And so here's how you can help them. Here's how we can help you help them. So if you're a young person, I've already, if your parents came to the G2 meeting, I've already prepped them that you may have hidden sin because you're human. I don't know of any, but because you're human and because you're a teenager, like all the adults in the room, you're doing, you may be doing some stuff your parents don't know. And, and we prepared them to receive a shocking report so that it's not shocking because your parents are sinners, you're sinners, and they can, they can walk you through that. Jesus is bigger. Than, don't, don't keep it hidden into your adulthood. People hijack their lives. Sin grows in darkness, it grows in secret, and, it, 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 and the light puts it to death. So if you're a young person, talk to your parents.
reach out for mercy and forgiveness. And then the last point, and I'm done, is I just thought about there may be sexual challenges in marriage. There's some people in the room, when I talked about this, you're going, whoa, that's not what I experience. I'm married, I have sex, but what you talked about, I didn't even try to even heard that before. I've, I've been a Bible, I've been a Bible church person, and I'm not sure I even think about my sexual relationship like that. And it could be that you realize tonight, I don't really have a sex problem. See, my greatest problem, you may be thinking, in marriage is not that we have mismatched desires. My greatest problem in marriage is not that I have a, a, a spouse that is sexually disinterested. You may think, that, now what I realize tonight, I don't, it's not really that. The problem I have is a one-flesh problem that's below the sexual union. The sexual union represents it. The sexual union... Um, consummates it, the sexual union celebrates it, the sexual union builds that oneness too. But you go, I've got a oneness problem below the surface. See, my real problem is that I don't sense that all of my life is shared by you and all of your life is shared by me. I think there's anger separating us. We don't have a sex problem, we got an anger problem. We don't have a sex problem, we got a selfishness problem. We got a laziness problem. We got the fact that I'm inattentive to you. And I'm not really loving you and laying down my life for you as a husband, as Christ does the church. And as a lady, maybe say, I'm not respecting you and honoring and loving you. I'm not acting as Eve was created to help you. And so what we have is we've got a problem. We're not sharing our hearts. We're not, we're not sharing spiritually. We're not sharing emotionally. We're not sharing in conversation. And then we're expecting an absolute July 4th fireworks show in the bedroom. And it's just, sex is never just about sex. It's about a relationship. It's about a one flesh joining. And so maybe what you realized is what the deal is that you need to add, the Lord's drawing your attention to is a deeper union in your heart. Maybe you said, man, that is discouraging to me. Because we've had marital problems for five years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. We've got, we got marital problems. And uh, I don't know that they're going to get solved. I want to say the same message of grace to you. The gospel is not for people with perfect marriages. The gospel is for people with fallen, sinful marriages. And so the gospel is good news. It always brings hope that God can help us, can convict us, that we can get help, that we can get counsel, that the scripture can speak to us. Sometimes the change is very slow, that we can repent a day at a time and be conformed to the image of Christ by applying the scripture to our lives. So I thought there's some people with sexually challenged marriages, you heard all this one flesh stuff, and go, wow, we, I, uh, man, I don't have anything like that. I've been far more thinking about the seven steps or the seven tricks because I had missed the, I thought something was missing and now I realize that's what it is. That's what it is. So wherever you are tonight, the Lord uh, wants to encourage you and I believe wants to communicate gospel truth to you and he wants us all to come as people that are broken, uh, that are that are in need of grace and mercy and respond and ask for his help. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.